welcome to the Move Daily Health Podcast, where we share information to empower you to be your own health hero. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Move Daily Health Podcast. I'm Dane Wallace here with Freya Spence, and today we welcome to the show Dr. Emily Splickhall. Dr. Emily is a podiatrist, human movement specialist, and global educator in barefoot science and rehabilitation. Practicing out of New York, she is the founder of EBFA Education and is the mastermind behind Nabosu Technology. Originally trained as a surgeon, Dr. Emily has a deep appreciation for the role of surgical intervention as it relates to orthopedic pathology, but her unique background in human movement and sensory science offers a refreshingly unbiased second opinion on the appropriateness of surgical recommendations and orthotics. Since 2012, Dr. Emily has been traveling the world over, sharing her unique approach to human movement, foot function, and barefoot science. Having taught in 35 countries and to over 20,000 professionals, Dr. Emily has quickly become a global leader in barefoot training and rehabilitation. And for that, we are super excited to have her on the podcast for a chat today. Dr. Emily, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so exhausted after hearing that description. <laughs> I was like losing my breath. I'm like, sometimes do I just forget how to breathe? I need to just ground myself here. Well, so that's a high level intro. And we know that it only skims the surface on uh, your accomplishments and impact that you've had on the industry. So can you give us a little bit of a background for our guests on what got you started into podiatry to begin with? Sure. So I actually, my background is in gymnastics. So I had a deep appreciation for movement since the age of six is when I started doing gymnastics. And then it quickly became to the level of high level performing competitive. Um, From there, I think that ingrained the appreciation for movement and, and I would say barefoot movement, but at that age and at that time, it wasn't even referenced that way. Um, But it still laid the foundation to how I look at movement I then, my background's actually in forensics, which is a, <laughs> a side tangent direction to go. CSI New York. I was, I was unhappy doing forensics and I left and got into fitness and training. And it seemed like the natural progression from my gymnastics years. When I started in fitness, absolutely loved it, started teaching classes, but then started getting hurt. And just from years of being an athlete and then teaching 20 classes a week and being young. So you think that you can do everything in every class and you start to get hurt. Um, So I realized that I couldn't, I couldn't build a career where my body was the tool where I was like, okay, I need to think like bigger picture. Where's the longevity in this career or my passion for movement. And that's why I started looking at medical school. Um, Happened to go to podiatry school, partly because it's in New York City. <laughs> I was very much like, I I love New York. I If I'm going to graduate school or medical school, I need to have it still in New York. Um, so I kind of fell into podiatry, not realizing that it was going to open this whole side of passion into uh, barefoot science and foot function and how I connect it to human movement. Um, so that's really what led to podiatry. But then as I was going through podiatry school, I started realizing that that was a very disconnected profession and it wasn't allowing me to use my fitness background and movement background in the way that I wanted. Uh, so I actually took a break, went back to graduate school, got my master's in human movement. And that was 
the bridge between fitness here, podiatry here, how I'm, how am I going to connect them? And it was, it was honestly my master's that for two years, I studied nothing but barefoot science, neuroscience, uh, fascial integration. And that led to how I use podiatry and then uh, EBFA, my education company. That is fantastic. And such a unique, I think a lot of people are afraid to make jumps like that. And you made like 10. <laughs> yeah. You definitely, any, any pivotal change in my career or my life, you can definitely equate to like in parkour, they call it breaking the jump. So like doing something really scary and either leaving a profession, which is what I did with forensics or leaving residency for two years and then going back. And that's, but that's how you grow. And that's how, I mean, you find areas of yourself and your profession and your growth during that period. If you're constantly comfortable, I mean, you're just going to stay almost status quo in a sense. Absolutely. Yeah, we totally agree with that. And so since those years where you were just kind of getting into it, finding your path, what are some of the major changes you've seen in the industry? Uh, so I started traveling and teaching on the circuit, like the conference circuit in 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's almost 10 years now. Yeah. And back then, um, fascia was not spoken about, that, like myofascial release. I remember some of the first conferences um, back in those years is when um, Cassidy and uh, Trigger Point or TP Therapy was first mm-hmm. coming out. That was around that same time. Um, obviously nothing on barefoot science yeah. from a from a deeper perspective, uh, maybe superficially, because there's always been yoga and Pilates and, you know, I don't want it to sound like barefoot hasn't existed um, before kind of the period that we're in right now. And then I would say the appreciation for breathing, breathing is huge now in the industry and yeah. everyone loves the pelvic floor. <laughs> so <laughs> I would say that those, and then uh, absolutely stuff with emotion and, you know, I, I think some of it could just be that that's been my own journey. <laughs> so I just start to notice more and more within those categories as well. But for a whole, people are into holistic and integrated and, you know, biohacking and anti-aging and all of that kind of loops in in times with where the fitness industry is and fitness education. Yeah, I, I definitely think like the the rise in um, attention to breathing. I remember back in I think it was uh, 2011 or 2010. Some colleagues and friends are all getting into you know paying attention to more breathing. My cycling coach was cueing me on breathing, but like you know the attention before was very clinical. Like I was in hospital when I was 16 and put into a breath clinic but that was a clinical application. Whereas now we're realizing it's one of those things that we've just overlooked. And so I think a lot of people overlooked their feet too. Oh, And in a huge way, cause they're just like, Oh, they're just there. And they take me from point A to point B. And um, one of the lovely things about your approach that's very noticeable is just the integration of all pieces. So although you do work on the foot, it's very much integrated with the 
rest of the body and obviously with the sensory experience and even with pain and with emotion as opposed to like, okay, guys, here's how the foot works and we just stay at the foot. It's very much here's how the foot works, but hey, here's how it communicates to the hip. Here's how it communicates to the core. And here's how it communicates like to your palate (laughs) of your mouth kind of thing, right? All your domes stacking. Um, So what is it? it? Was EBFA founded because you saw that gap in our industry and decided that we could better our profession as movement specialists by better educating our clients and ourselves about all that integratedness that wasn't necessarily being addressed? Or what was the inspiration behind it? I would say that that's been the evolution of EBFA. Mm-hmm. So um, EBFA, so if listeners are not aware, stands for Evidence-Based Fitness Academy. And that, I, I had started it when I was getting my master's. And what was unique about the master's in human movement is that I was reading hundreds of research articles. And then you have to write about them. I mean, it's, it's cool. So you like you're reading, <laughs> writing summaries and you're discussing it. And there was so much interesting evidence-based, research-based um, topics. And I wasn't seeing that really emphasized in the fitness industry. Mm-hmm. Like the fitness industry sometimes can be a little like, oh, this looks cool or this works on me. So therefore it's got to work on my client. Really? (laughs) It can be like that? (laughs) Unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. Or uh, don't you feel it? So therefore it's doing something really like not research-based at all. (laughs) My master's, I mean, any graduate school is going to focus on how to read research and then how to critically read research, apply it, um, and really uh, break down some of the methodology, et cetera. So the start was how can I start bringing some of these research-based concepts into the fitness industry? So it wasn't even focused just on barefoot, just on feet. I brought it out into, I mean, it would kind of loop into some things that I'm similar or interested in like fall reduction Mm -hmm. or balance training or proprioceptive training. So they, it was slightly connected to how I now speak, but that's why it was called evidence-based and then not realizing like, Oh, okay, this is going to open into this whole like layered and layered of barefoot science and foot integration and breathing and pelvic floor, uh, which is why I've kind of dropped it to be, or, you know, shortened it to be EBFA. Um, mm-hmm. There's no barefoot or foot in it at mm-hmm. all in the title, but that's fine. Um, but then the more that I started reading research on barefoot science and, and foot integration and fascia, it's shaped how I treat patients. It's shaped how all of our certifications are um, developed. So two years after I developed EBFA is when we launched our certifications. Mm-hmm. And that was with barefoot training specialist. It started as a one-day training, was very biomechanical, was very isolated, almost like you were saying, more isolated. I focused more on the anatomy. And then just from gauging people taking it and applying it, I was seeing that it wasn't wasn't translating well to fitness professionals and movement specialists. Mm -hmm. So then I knew that I had to bring it beyond that 
and really show the exercises, really show the assessments, show how it can go even more so into these different applications. So it's been its own evolution. And then now where EBFA is, is very emotion, uh, mind, body, functional medicine, stress levels, uh, somatic based. And that's partly just from my own exploration is that I think as an education company, it's our responsibility continuously evolve our education. If I taught the same stuff continuously year after year, I mean, that's not, (laughs) you can't do that either because there's so much research that's continuously done and the body is continuously changing that the way that I treat my patients now to the way I treated them five years ago is completely different because I'm constantly challenging myself as a practitioner as well. Absolutely. We couldn't agree with that more and more and more evidence is coming out and people are changing too. Even compared to 10 years ago, the types of injuries I'm sure that are coming in now into your door are slightly different than a decade ago or even before that. Yeah. And you could say that with the evolution of barefoot shoes or minimal shoes, I, even if I wasn't a specialist in that area and would do consulting for Nike and these different companies, I feel that movement specialists or podiatrists or anyone who deals with the human body and movement has to understand those differences in in footwear and then what that's going to present for the client or for the patient and how you can guide them appropriately. If let's say a podiatrist doesn't educate themselves on the differences of minimal footwear or the benefit of minimal footwear or maybe the disadvantages, whatever, and someone comes in and they stay to the exact same stuff that they learn in podiatry school, that new balance is best and to have an orthotic. So many more people are going to be ahead of you and you, you have to evolve as a professional for the, your entire career. You can't not ever go to a continuing education event or a conference and think that you are still training your client in the most effective way or an athlete for that case as well. Yeah. And I just, I mean, I just finished up the the level one barefoot specialist course and oh, after cool. going through it, I took it, I did the online. Okay. So I was one of the online ones. So I didn't get to meet you in person. Um, but when I was done, I walked up to Frey and I was like, how is this not like requisite knowledge for like any personal trainer anywhere? Like it's just such fundamental stuff that can have such a huge upstream impact into the rest of the body. And now that I'm, you know, I went through that course and I can see even in the past dealing with clients or seeing other trainers almost spinning their wheels, looking at all these other things. And it's like, if you just address that foot, that would have such a massive impact on all these little things that you're actually trying to work through. Yeah. Yeah. It's it really profoundly the impact. I don't know why, why it's not introduced earlier in certifications and emphasized in, you know, physical therapy school and some of these allied health schools as much. Um, I mean, the foot is definitely confusing, <laughs> which just a bit, you know, <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah, that a lot of people would just kind of be like, I don't know, let's not even go there and just refer well, to someone that else. That does probably explain some of it. It's, I mean, it's very busy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very busy yeah. thing. 
it's a work of art. Um, with that said, though, a lot of people are confused about foot types. And so can you give our listeners a little bit of a background on the main foot types? You know, we have people who come in, they say, oh, well, I was told as a kid, I'm flat footed. And it, it's almost like it's a kiss of death. Can you give a little background about the main foot types you discuss and also their advantages and disadvantage when it comes to that? Yeah, so I would say the media, we'll just call it media, makes people want to think that there's three main foot types, mm-hmm. meaning flat foot, high arch, normal arch. <laughs> or, <laughs> it does. Normies. <laughs> exactly. So that doesn't really mean anything. Um, you really want to be referencing the the baseline positions of the joints of the foot, which might make this question or this answer much more confusing. But if you think of, oh, I have flat feet, what does that really mean? What is that telling me? Do you have a pancake foot? So you just like literally your foot is like flat, but you're not pronating. Like the pronation is the part that is really what trainers and movement specialists need to understand. And then pronation slash supination in itself is really confusing as well (laughs) and is misused or described improperly even by some of my colleagues which are podiatrists which is really odd Um, but understanding that your heel or the back of your foot uh, moves with every step that you take and those subtle movements of the foot allow the foot to become what's called locked and unlocked or stable and unstable. So instead of giving like a foot type, I would say that the the foot, the back of the foot can deviate into almost too unlocked or too unstable, which is what you could call the quote unquote flat foot or what a lot of people will call this flat foot. Um, even though it's technically eversion or pronation, and then the locked or the stable position, which would be in someone's mind what a higher arch would look like, or a supinated foot. So it's really the baseline of how you want to think about the foot. Typically, if listeners like to use the flat foot position, knowing that it's the eversion, that it's the unlocked, that it's the unstable, that means that that client's foundation is not in a position to help create stability and transmit force and power. Now, everybody goes back and forth between locked and unlocked with every step that we take. So if you think of it more like a seesaw and you're deviating, to one side would be flat foot or eversion or pronation, and then the other side would be supination, high arch, stable, locked you want to kind of dance in the middle of how that seesaw is moving or the teeter-totter is moving. If you deviate too far in one direction, whether it's the the pronated or the supinated, then that's where you start to see the injuries. Sometimes people get a little bit excited when there's a little bit of a flat foot or a pronation, and then they jump to a conclusion when that's not necessarily appropriate. That could be a movement specialist or that could be a podiatrist that kind of freaks out about it. Um, And then the same thing with supination or high arch is people will jump to a conclusion. Now, if you're thinking of the injury risk that goes with both of them, flat foot, 
quoting funny ears. Yep. <laughs> but a flatter foot, a pronated foot, an everted foot um, is typically associated with, um, I would say, some of the plantar fasciitis, knee pain, back pain. Um, the foot can't stabilize its fa- its itself fast enough during dynamic movement. So it can start to pull at some of the connective tissue. So you definitely see certain injuries with that one more. Those clients typically have a harder time getting into their core and into their glute muscles. So that would be like the glute amnesia type clients. They just can't get their glutes activated. Look at their feet. They may have a pronated slash flat foot. Um, And then on the other extreme, the supinated foot or the high arch foot is more rigid. So a overly rigid foot doesn't have time to unlock fast enough to absorb impact and dynamic movement can be an issue. And they're a little bit more susceptible to uh, stress fractures or Achilles tendonitis or IT band issues purely related to the fact that they're very rigid. Mm-hmm. And then if you go all the way up the chain, someone with a more supinated foot is probably going to have really tight hips mm-hmm. and opening is going to be really important for that type of foot and that type of client. That was, you summarized beautifully, a very complex thing. <laughs> Cause as I'm thinking about it, I'm like, I remember on the course we went through um, the subtalar joint, and it was so different from what I learned in human kinetics in terms of the approach to it. And then pairing it with, okay, this is when tib fib externally rotate, this is when femur internally rotates. Um, there's a lot going on, but yeah, looking at the whole chain, and I think a lot of people get very freaked out or discouraged when they're given certain titles regarding their foot. But I think it's more empowering them for them to understand um, that regardless of their foot type, they can still have strong feet, mm-hmm. and that having a weak base. It's like, if you know that your foot's, you know, a a more mobile person, I was a um, ballet dancer for a couple decades. I started when I was two and there are a lot of us who turn out from the hip, but like would completely collapse at the arch because we didn't really have that intrinsic strength and we were wiggly. We were very mobile. And so it was just like easy to collapse into all the joints. So a number of us would get things like subluxing kneecaps, uh, FHL problems, stress fractures, and, and whatnot. But as you start to develop foot strength, because every day started with a lot of footwork, those problems started to resolve and we started to get the rotation and the placement from the right places. But that said, when it comes to orthotics, a lot of people think that their feet are weak, therefore they need orthotics. Can you discuss a little bit more about your perception on when they're needed, when maybe it's not the best approach, and whether they are a training wheel or a permanence? Yes. So orthotics, just in general, for people to know that they're highly overprescribed, surprise, (laughs) probably not breaking news to anyone, Um, but they are overprescribed partly because the podiatry community is taught to believe that the arch cannot support itself, that the concrete and the reality of the environment that we move on is just not, not the way that your foot was designed to move on. Therefore, we need to put it in this artificial structure to support the foot. Otherwise, you know, you're going to die or something. All hell breaks loose. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So 
a lot of people are put into them. So if a client says, no, I was told I have flat feet again, quote unquote, in that word, I have flat feet and my podiatrist said I need orthotics. It's really important for the trainer or the movement specialist to really look at the foot themselves. And that's why I created my certification to empower professionals to understand how to assess the foot. So then you can take a picture of the foot show the client their foot and say, you do not have a flat foot. Your foot is completely neutral. You don't need the orthotics and the orthotics are technically making you weaker. Um, so that's a majority of the people. That's still a lot of my patients. And then I pull the patient out of the orthotics. So majority of people, I will actually take them out of orthotics, especially for, let's say, training, like you're in the gym training. Yeah. Yeah. That's the best environment that you don't need orthotics. If you're running, that's, that's different. The ballistics and the force of running three to four times your body weight coming in, very different. Standing all day, that's another one. Standing all day is really, really hard on your body that even for trainers, trainers stand all day, they're training clients all day, really should be in something that doesn't have to be an aggressive orthotic, but something that provides a little bit of arch support because you're trying to defy human physiology is really what it is. And standing all day, not natural on the body, gravity is down on you for that many hours. And when you stand, your plantar fascia and your Achilles tendon are constantly contracting. So the risks of getting plantar fasciitis or Achilles tendonitis is really high in those people who have to stand long hours because it's just not natural. Uh, orthotics or an arch support would actually help to offset that. So that would be a situation that people are actually surprised when I say that, that you know, us as movement specialists, we believe in minimal shoes, we wanna kind of look the part, so then when you're training your client all day, you are looking the part and you're in minimal shoes, you're in people barefoot or five fingers or whatever. And then you get plantar fasciitis and you are totally surprised because you heard that minimal shoes are good for, you know, um, so you have to understand the stress that you're placing the foot under your foot type, how much recovery you're doing. So if you're going to be a trainer that is uh, standing long hours in your Vibrams or your Vivo Barefoots because you want to look the part and you just believe in it, then you better be releasing your feet at home at the end of the day, every day, or you're going to hit a tissue stress threshold and you will, you will start to break down. There are many patients that I put on into orthotics for a transient reason, meaning like it's a temporary, let's just get you out of pain. And then let's try to build the strength so that you don't need the orthotics all the time, just in certain situations like I described. And then you can try to find this balance between natural foot function, minimal shoes, and the reality of concrete. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the reality of concrete. I love that. We are unfortunately in the concrete jungle. So let's say take a trainer, for example, or somebody who stands all day, put them in a shoe that's a little more supportive. But then let's say when we get them out of that environment to make sure the foot stays strong, is that where now we can say, all right, when you're at the gym, you're going to do some a warm up barefoot, for example. So can you walk us through a little bit about how warming up barefoot can mitigate injuries, not just for these people, but for anyone? Yeah. Yeah. So the, what you do in the warm up, in my opinion, is more important than the actual workout. The period of movement prep or a warm up 
from a neuroactivation perspective, that's how I look at barefoot, barefoot training and barefoot concepts is that they're best placed in the beginning of the session that you're rolling the feet out um, on a golf ball, lacrosse ball, whatever product you want to use, but you're doing, let's say five minutes of a foot release. Some people will walk across like a pebble path or pebble yeah. mat or something like that. Those are meant to do the same, like a trigger point release, wake up to the foot. And there's research that shows five minutes of foot trigger point release or pinpoint release can show an immediate improvement in balance. So that's great for everyone, not just for seniors. So that's why doing that at the beginning of the session, starting to warm up the foot. And then um, if you want to walk across like the naboso surface, like it's just a different texture that's stimulating the nerves in the bottom of the feet. Do you want to do five minutes on a power plate or a whole body vibration platform at the start of the session to wake up the nervous system and the gateway through the skin in the bottom of the feet? Then I would encourage doing short foot and actually engaging the foot, pushing the toes down into the ground. And every time you engage the foot, you want to engage the pelvic floor and make sure you're exhaling. So now you're starting to sequence uh, foot to core with your breath and breath work is supposed to be happening in the movement part, movement prep parts of the session. So it just kind of segues you naturally into the breathing exercises that you might be doing. And if you're doing fascial work, if you're doing triplanar body weight movements to warm up the body. So that's how I would incorporate it. And then if you put on shoes, I would encourage to go towards a more minimal shoe just so that you maintain that freedom of movement, especially if you're if you're not doing crazy box jumps or running. I would say probably 99% of clients can get away with being in a minimal shoe. And even if they have a really flat foot or overpronation, they will be able to handle that shoe totally fine. And then going through the session. If you could do the session barefoot, the entire session barefoot, that's of course ideal. Um, but certain facilities you can't and that you just want to kind of honor that in some commercial gyms you can't. A lot of commercial gyms now allow you to be in socks. So at least you're not in the shoe, but you're able to get a little bit more connection to the ground and freedom of movement in a sock. So I would encourage going in one of those directions. Amazing. We thankfully have a gym where we can go barefoot and sock feet and just flat shoes. And we've noticed a massive improvement in clients' movement capacity, especially because we deal with a lot of pain management injuries. They acquire the skill so much faster when they get to go barefoot. It's uncanny. And even the ones who doubt it, we're just like, okay, just try this set. And immediately they're like, oh yeah, I feel my hip more. Or yeah, I do feel my core now. Um, so it's fun to see those light bulb moments go off, but I think a lot of people don't really fully appreciate how much of their foot is dedicated to sensory perception. And, um, that's something that you've addressed even further with the Naboso technology. Can you tell us a little about that? Cause we have a mat and we have the insoles. We use the insoles for winter boots cause they tend to be really clunky and heavy. It's like putting cement things on the bottom of your feet. <laughs> yeah, they, um, they changed how I was able to like walk in the winter. It was yeah. amazing. But we noticed with the Noboso mat in particular, I had a uh, pretty epic, we're calling it epic now, uh, <laughs> spine injury. And I found that it was 
unreal what I could do on that versus just on our wooden floors, meaning I could get there faster or sooner. It's not like I couldn't get to it eventually on the wooden floor, but I noticed a very quick increase in skill improvement. Um, I was doing a lot of balance work and eye turning and then using that with people who are you know, not spine rehab people, still watch people improve their skills that much sooner. Yeah. So it's pretty cool for something that seems as simple as a mat, but there's clearly a lot of research and mind think behind it. Yes. Um, Which I'm glad to hear that it's helped you so much. That's absolutely amazing. And that's one of the applications for it is spine injuries, anything that that's a targeting nervous system is the approach that we're going. Um, so for listeners that are not familiar with Naboso, Naboso is a textured insole and mat company. And all of our products have what's called a two-point discrimination texture across the entire surface. So if you were to look at the mat or the insoles, there's tiny little pyramids that are across the entire surface. The height of the pyramids is uh, 1.5 millimeters. So it's, they're not high. It's not anything that is trying to mimic a massage in any way. It's not like the rock mats. It's not like um, the acupressure mats where it's kind of these painful pointy things that you have to stand on. Um, and then the distance between each of those pyramids is also very specific. So it's like one millimeter, right? So you're just thinking all these tiny little pyramids, Mm -hmm. super close together across the entire mat or insole. And what we're doing is we're going after a very specific nerve in the feet that is sensitive to that two-point discrimination. The best analogy that I give is Braille. And how your hand reads Braille is essentially what we're doing to the foot. It's the same nerve that we're targeting. That nerve is the most superficial nerve in the hands and the feet. So it's the one that's closest to the surface. And what happens when you stimulate the nervous system with a, in this case, texture or a stimulus that the brain recognizes, that's where you're getting these really powerful effects like what you experienced of getting to the exercise faster or getting to the end result faster, right? Um, Or we'll see people that have major compromised balance and then they stand on the mat and you can see an immediate shift in their balance or people with MS and Parkinson's who can barely walk and then they're running. Things that people think are like made up (laughs) or like a magic insert. It's true. Valid. They're valid. And it's really based around several things. One, the power of sensory stimulation is one thing I would say. The power of the specificity of a stimulus, which is really important for trainers and movement specialists to understand and kind of goes back to the research-based side of it is the more specific you can be by understanding the body and the nervous system or just human physiology, the faster you will get to your end point or your end result, whatever your end goal is. And then the third thing is that it's really showing the power of the nervous system and training the nervous system, both the peripheral, the central, and the autonomic can have really profound effects on the human body versus just looking at the body as like bones and joints and muscles. And you're thinking, you know, I I mean, I know you guys don't think in that way, but thinking like cool shit I can do on the TRX or something. I don't know. Like just 
thinking of exercise, not knocking TRX because I love TRX. But no, no. <laughs> we have one. <laughs> no, I have a TRX. It's sitting there. So I was like, Ooh, I could have said both. I could have said anything. But um, on any apparatus is just like exercise creativity doesn't necessarily make someone a better trainer, let's say. Mm-hmm. It's, you could do the same stuff. I mean, most stuff that I do is like kind of the same and is really simple. And most of it is body weight. And, you know, you can throw off someone's balance, quote unquote balance, without ever being on an unstable surface, just by doing standing on one leg and doing eye movement exercises, like you were saying that you'll do things or throw cognitive tasks at them while they're standing on one leg. So there's other ways that you can challenge the nervous system uh, effectively. And last point that I'll kind of make around it is that when I train clients or patients or you're thinking rehab or athletes is you want the nervous system to win. Like you always want the client to win. And it reminds me when I was teaching classes like years ago and it would be the instructor or the trainer that would make their client vomit that would, or like everyone would pass out and they would be like, I am the best. And it's just like, what? Just because you like kick their ass and they're vomiting in the corner mm-hmm. does not mean that they're. Saw that the other day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And unfortunately, it still does. It's still slightly out yeah. there. It kind of makes us cringe when it happens. The, the thing about that, which not to go on a tangent, but the thing about that, mm-hmm. that is like a little bit. Uh, just negative in my opinion, is that you honestly are making these people feel like they can't accomplish something. I suck. I'm never going back to that class again because I'm not going to be able to finish it. Or, you know, I fell out of shape and now I really feel out of shape. Like you can't, like you, yeah. you can't beat down on someone's, you know, morale that way. And if you look at the nervous system, because I deal primarily with people with compromised nervous systems, I need to give them every hack possible to improve their nervous system and stimulate their nervous system so that they can win at each exercise, whether that's stimulating the feet, stimulating the hands, stimulating the vestibular system, um, using things for the eyes, like you, you want it to, breathing patterns, putting them out of shoes, yeah. things like that helps them win versus they're just going to give up. We we love yeah. that approach too. We call it um, movement safety because a lot of people come in and they think, uh, oh my God, I'm going to be made to do X, Y, and Z. And uh, it's like, no, we're going to create a safe environment for which you can learn. And um, one of the things we often work with people on is like, their walking will be the first thing we work on. And it's like so empowering to know that, oh my gosh, I walk all day, every day, or not all day, but I walk enough every day that just by sensing this pattern differently, I can impact my own outcome. That's like one of the most, the least intimidating things we can do for people. And we're in total agreement with just I like that word making the, or sorry, that phrase, making the nervous system win. Cause we talk about nervous system safety and creating safety in order to, you know, heal from injury or trauma or whatever it is. But um, yeah, it really does have to be a win and anything we can use as a tool in that the nobosomat is fantastic. And it does seem deceptively simple and you look at it and you're like, Oh, this is a cool texture. And then you feel the results change there. 
Yeah, yeah I mean, really it, it took two years to develop that mat. So I was yeah. like, I hope people are not like, this is just a yoga mat or something. No, it is not a yoga mat. No, there's a lot of R&D in that. Yeah, it's amazing. Like the first time I saw the mat, I'm like, what is what is this? She's like, it's an embossed mat. I'm like, what's that? I was like super excited and over the moon. I'm like, why are you not so excited right now? And again, this is, this is where I like, this is before I knew anything about the foot. I mean, fun, fun fact about me, uh, was it three, four years ago, I, I could deadlift over 600 pounds, but I could not stand on one foot for longer yeah. than like two seconds. Oh, geez. Yeah. Okay. And it, is it a wonder where I tore my patella tendon? Are we, are we, yeah. is this strange? I gently took away all his barbells for a while. <laughs> this is when I met Dane. I was like, okay, so we're going to take these and we're going to put you on one leg without a shoe on <laughs> i'm like what is this witchcraft what is what is happening here on that note i'm from the strongman strength yeah. training industry industries that's what you want to call it and nobody really talks about feet everyone knows that like deadlifting and barefoot is good but i think people just think it's because you're just closer to the ground so you have to pull it less far have you worked with many strength athletes and have you seen a direct impact just strengthening the foot to strengthening the rest of things Hundred percent, yeah. Um, so you could be looking at it as like, okay, you're closer to the ground, so you're changing, you know, levers in a sense. Um, how much you're loading, perhaps some of the glute fibers from a length tension relationship. You can kind of pull it from that perspective, but I feel like that's just the tip of the iceberg, or that's almost the taking it very literal in the sense of, of mechanical, like we're muscles and bones and joints. And that's how I feel that that approach looks at it versus the foot to core activation that if you're teaching someone in strength training, Olympic lifting, powerlifting, any of those categories, how to really harness the power of the foot and then to, to coordinate the power of the foot engagement with the deep core, which is critical, it's happening on a lower level in everyone, just because you're inherently going to exhale when you lift and, and things like that. But if you actually consciously train those activation pathways, you will be able to harness more stability or more intra-abdominal pressure, which means you're going to get more out of your glutes or your hips or whatever the target is. Um, and then the same thing of adding the sensory. So we have a lot of those athletes or professionals lifting on the Naboso mat or with Naboso insoles in their lifting shoes. And then they're seeing the benefit of, let's say the benefit of being barefoot. So they're closer to the ground, the benefit of activating the foot with their breath and their pelvic floor. So that's two. And then the added benefit of the sensory. I mean, that's like to me, a, a home run or a grand slam or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've started paying attention to my foot over the past year or so. I took some time off, not really competing anymore. And yeah. it's just amazing how much better everything feels now that I'm kind of getting back to some heavy lifts. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, I'm not as beat up. Everything just feels so much more coordinated, I guess. So to yeah. Speak. One thing that I will add that just might be interesting is I do make orthotics for some Olympic lifting. And the reason oh, for that is um, some of the like split jumps that you're doing, or if you're really pushing the weight past your physiological tissue resistance, let's just say. So every time you lift a weight or you do something dynamic, your arch is going to drop a little bit. That's called arch compression. And that arch compression is based off of ligaments and your plantar fascia 
Some of it is muscular tension that can resist it a little bit added on to that. The higher you push your weight, I mean, 600 pounds is, that's insane. Like that. He ran with that. 700? What was the frame? Oh, and yeah, yoke and frame have been over 600 to 700 and just running around with it too. So think about that, like holding it or having it on your back and actually running with it. Yeah, okay. The, the impacts on the, yeah. on the, yeah, it's crazy. That's it's not good. good. Yeah, so. It is insane. It's not long. It's not for longevity. No, God, no. <laughs> but it's, it's very impressive. The whole point is that that's a lot of weight. My Instagram is so cool. Yeah, it's postable. Um, but that's, that's <laughs> a lot of weight. You are going to bottom out your arch mm-hmm. compression threshold, essentially. Okay. So in that case, in that case, um, then I would say your lighter reps, your warm up reps, um, you can still put the Naboso insoles in your shoes. Like there's ways to kind of sneak it in, but still give a little bit of some of that. Uh, resistance to arch compression if it's needed, especially with some of the moves or pushing the weight higher. And that's what you want to be very clear. There was a Olympic lifter, power lifter, one of them on Instagram that happened to do something barefoot and was just like, oh, I happen to forget my shoes, but lifting barefoot is just like not recommended. And I was like, actually it is. And then he was like, it's not. And I was like, okay, <laughs> okay, um, take my course. Um, <laughs> but the response to someone like that could just be like, okay, let's talk about it. I understand if you're pushing to like 600 pounds, I get it, totally get it. I'm not going to be, I didn't drink the Kool-Aid like totally that I'm going to be blinded by it. And everyone should never drink Mm -hmm. the Kool-Aid on anything, including barefoot, because there's an appropriateness Mm -hmm. for everything. So if you understand the deep uh, science of every technique, then you could say, this is my movement prep. My first reps I do with this. Mm -hmm. When I'm doing lighter days, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do foot to core activation in my Olympic lifting shoes. So I can, you know what I mean? So it's, you're not going totally... A or B. I mean, there's just so much in between. Context. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we do find that a lot of people will get very stuck on, on one singular way of doing it. It's like, I'm a barefoot person now, and now I'm going to go run this marathon barefoot on concrete. It's like, okay, you might be qualified to do that on the trails in the woods for half the distance. <laughs> but once you're on concrete, you do need a little bit more cushioning. So with regards to choosing footwear, some people are even afraid to take off their shoes at home. Um, We certainly met a lot of people who've been prescribed orthotics who are afraid to do that. Can you tell us what populations in particular might need to be a little cautious around a more zero drop shoe? For example, zero drop for the listeners is like a completely flat shoe. Um, so I would say just in general, the totally flat shoe, like a Vivo Barefoot or a Five Finger or some of the other ones that are out there would be a little bit harder on a really flat foot. Again, that doesn't mean anything, but pronated foot, just meaning that their foundation is unlocked. So the chances of stressing the soft tissue long hours in a totally zero drop shoe, just they they might be at risk for it. Yeah. Um, Those that have a higher arch, just higher arch feet, again, are more rigid. Those that have really tight um, ankles, more to the point of uh, when they walk, they have what's called an early heel lift. 
So they're like they have a really bouncy mm. gait, and that bouncy gait is associated to tight ankles. But when it comes to ankle mobility, which could be a whole nother podcast, but a lot of times people will think it's just like tight calves, tight muscle, tight muscle. Some people are born with a structurally short Achilles tendon. Those individuals are the ones that walk with the bouncy gait. And yeah, when you see someone with an early heel lift or that really bouncy gait, oftentimes I ask them if they were a toe walker when they were a kid, a lot of them will actually say yes. So you can start to kind of profile the chances of it being a structurally short Achilles tendon. They would have a hard time being in totally zero drop shoes. And then for people who have to stand long hours, I would say those. Anyone who has a history of plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendonitis, you may want to screen them around that as well or limit the time in a totally zero drop shoe. But zero drop for working out, again, is is the direction that I would put it. But what's funny now that we're in warmer, warmer months is all the sandals and the ballet flats. I like so many of the like warm weather shoes are zero drop. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. People don't even realize that, like, oh, you're wearing zero drop now. Okay. Um, But that could also open a channel for trainers and movement specialists to have that conversation. That footwear conversation does not just mean your workout shoes, but it Mm -hmm. also means the shoes that they're wearing the other 90% of their week, day. Yeah, Yeah. day and their week, and what they choose to walk to work in or, or whatnot. Um, here in New York, because we're such a commuting city, that's extremely important. And I'm a little bit more in tune with assessing footwear and having the conversation, not just because of the night, but because it's a walking based city. And most of my patients are taking 20,000 steps a day. So I need to have that, that conversation with them that I encourage trainers and movement specialists to do that as well. Yeah, we love that. We have people bring in whatever shoes they move in. So if they only have shoes that are at their desk, then we don't really mind because they're just for being there, but like whatever they get to work in, whatever they walk in, run in, that kind of thing. Now, when it comes to, you mentioned it already earlier, but I think there are many people who don't do this properly and we learned it properly from you because I was certainly taught differently in ballet. What is the best foot exercise you prescribe or you would ask people to do every single day? Can I have two? Yes, you can definitely have two. So I would say the foot release that I mentioned earlier. And the the foot release, even though I say roll your feet, and I totally catch myself doing it, but it's just because people understand that easier, is you actually want to do a pinpoint – like a pressure release versus rolling. Uh, There's a video that I made and it's on YouTube about a five minute foot release. There's six points on the bottom of the foot. You want to put the lacrosse ball is actually a little bit too big. So I'm more a fan of a golf ball. I'm also a fan of rad rounds by the company rad Mm -hmm. roller. And there's some other products that are out there that you just want to think a smaller size ball that can release these different areas in the bottom of the foot. No need to roll, place it, you know, just past the heel, hold it there, allow your body weight, hold it there for 30 seconds to, you know, a minute might start to get a little bit long, but like 30 seconds roughly, and then go to spot two, which is towards the middle of the arch center of the foot. 
hold it there, 30 seconds, your body weight release, shift a little bit to the left, which happens to be directly underneath where your peroneus longus tendon goes, sit there, release, etc. Um, I can send you guys the video if you want to see. Yeah, we'll link that in. Yeah. And thinking more that type of release, almost like a shiatsu massage or Thai massage is very different than Swedish, right? Like they're different techniques. So that would be one. And I recommend to do that every morning, every evening for at least five minutes per foot every single day. When it comes to foot function or just everything in general with the body is consistency is more important than like, oh, I did it 30 minutes twice a week versus five minutes every day. That doesn't mean better, right? So it's little bits every day consistently creates a better effect on the human body. Second exercise is short foot, of course, <laughs> where short foot, again, there's a video that I can send. Yeah. Um, short foot is easily described as doming. You're a dancer, so you'd probably know it as doming. Um, pushing the toes down into the ground. And when you push the toes down into the ground, the tips of the toes, you will start to see or feel that the arches of the foot start to lift. You might start to see or feel that the muscles contract, that you can actually see them um, kind of increase their tone. That in itself is a foot exercise that over time can wake up the small muscles and start to build an arch. Yeah. The way that I like to teach it is that it's always, always coordinated with the pelvic floor and the breath or the deep core. So what that means is that when the client is standing, let's say in a split stance, and they are focusing on their right foot, and they find their foot tripod, which is the first met head, the fifth met head, the heel, and they spread their toes and they're back on the ground, they're going to push the tips of the toes down into the ground, see or feel the muscles contract in the arch lift, and at the same time, start to exhale. So the exhale is creating the effect on the deep core and the diaphragm. And then to emphasize it a little bit more, when the toes are pushing down and they're exhaling, they are emphasizing contracting the pelvic floor and the TVA. So that is done in a cyclical way, meaning you want to inhale, relax the foot, relax the pelvic floor, and then start to exhale, push the toes down, start to engage the pelvic floor, keep exhaling for roughly eight seconds, let the whole thing go, inhale for four or five seconds, do it again, exhale, eight to 10 seconds. So you're kind of cycling it that way. That would be the second exercise. It is easily done after you do the trigger point release if you want excuse me, before you work out, you could do it. Um, if you stand in long hours and you're starting to feel your lower back and your feet and you're getting fatigued and you're kind of dropping into gravity, it's a good way to reactivate the foot to core sequence. And then you can even add the, since you had mentioned it in the beginning, the tongue to the palate, which is also a way that I like to mm-hmm. do it or I typically do it that way, where you push the toes down, you're lifting the pelvic floor and engaging the deep core, your breath is exhaling, and then you're bringing your tongue into your palate. You're essentially starting to stack the domes, as you also had mentioned in the beginning. (laughs) Thank you so much. Uh, (laughs) It made sense to me when you said it that way. I was like, of course, yes. <laughs> we, do have, we do have different domes. That yeah. of the arch, the pelvic yeah. floor, the diaphragm, and then the pellet, 
when you are exhaling and pushing the toes down, they all stack. Um, in yoga, they call them bandhas. So all of the bandhas are being activated. And the bandha could almost be like an internal energy, if you kind of want to go in that way, or a, a zone of stability. Um, mm. They all happen to be on what's called your deep front fascial line. So they are connected fascially. So you're stimulating the fascial system, which is the nervous system, mm-hmm. through that exercise as well. Um, so it's a really, really powerful exercise if it's done the right way. A lot of people will do just the foot part and not incorporate the breath, or they will just do the breath, but not really consciously emphasize the deep core. So you Mm kind of need to do it from a deeper way. And that's where it's hard to get some of that information off of like the internet. Mm -hmm. There's subtleties to every exercise is you really need to know you know, where the cueing is, are they actually engaging the foot the right way? A lot of people don't, and they almost over-engage it. Um, when it comes to the foot, you you kind of want to think with the pelvic floor also, and this is another, like, not a vent or a tangent, but... <laughs> We're fine with that, those two. You know, that the foot engagement should be around, like, 20%. Yeah. Like, uh, when you're doing the movement prep side to it, right? Similar to the pelvic floor. So if you think of... Foot engagement has become what a lot of people used to do with the Kegel or like uh, pelvic floor exercises is that stronger is better. Like if I'm engaging my pelvic floor to a hundred percent, therefore I'm He-Man and I'm amazing or something or uh, squeeze all the blueberries (laughs) Exactly, or like, I don't know if you like vagina weights, sorry, but it's things where it's like that does not equal functional <laughs> pelvic floor. <laughs> like, <laughs> later. sorry, you're gonna return all the jade eggs. <laughs> no, exactly. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, but it's true because mm-hmm. a lot of people think that therefore that means you have like the most badass pelvic floor, but you're still like wetting yourself or something. I don't know. Same thing with the foot that I see a lot of people taking short foot to a different level. Yes. Meaning that, that they now on Instagram, I'm seeing it, that people are putting the foot across like a void. So they're putting the heel on a, a brick or a block, we'll just say. Oh, and then the big toe is on the other side and the arch is suspended. And the goal is to drive your big toe down as hard as you can to then show you have a badass foot strength that's not the intent. You should not be engaging your foot to that level because that, that, that's not the way that the foot functionally works. Mm-hmm. That honestly can give people a lot of plantar fasciitis and over engagement issues because that's the equivalent of literally the vagina weight. Um, <laughs> the, I'm so sorry. I'm going to find that video on Instagram <laughs> and I'm just going to comment vagina weights. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, yes, totally <laughs> that's all that Dr. Emily spoke about. Um, so the foot is designed to create stiffness or the short foot or this foot core activation very quickly. Yeah. With a high level, but high level doesn't mean to a hundred hundred percent max contraction, but it stiffens and then it releases. Mm-hmm. And the coordination is coordination of the stiffening of the foot is like within milliseconds and is coordinated with the breath as well. So you want to think of it as like a dance of how you're engaging versus the harder you engage, therefore the stronger your foot is. Mm-hmm. 
you wind up with like hypertonicity essentially. Yeah, you, Rigid, you do. Really functional. Yeah, <laughs> you do. And I've had kind of related to the pelvic floor is I've had patients kegel their self, themselves into a pudendal nerve entrapment, which oh. the pudendal nerve is in the perineum and just, you know, to be able to like try to sit on a nerve that is entrapped like that, it's so painful for these patients And because of the, oh, more is better. Let me keep engaging, engaging, engaging. And that's not, that's not how we want to think of the foot either. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's, it's really uh, kind of unfortunate because it takes a really powerful exercise and it applies it in a way that it really shouldn't be applied. And can ultimately cause harm, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's not worth it. Yeah. It is very rare with anything that extremes are the right choice like right. if anything in life like yeah. it's, it's not what the body needs yeah <laughs> so we always do a few wrap up not rapid fire but wrap up questions that are similar from guest to guest because we like to kind of know where you're at currently our first one is in the last year we know you do a lot of reading and ongoing education what would you say is one of the top books that you've read that you would recommend oh my gosh i only get one I know it's hard. <laughs> if oh. you want to do two, I think I think one of our last guests, she just she like five or six. Sharon had like, this and this, and, and this. I didn't blame her. They were all fantastic. Yeah, so I I would try to be that person as well. Um, <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> Give us three. I know. I would say one of the best is uh, "Waking the Tiger" by mm-hmm. Peter Levine. I'm very much into like mind, body, trauma, emotion right now, and autonomic nervous system. So Waking yeah. the Tiger by Peter Levine, When the Body Says No by Dr. Gabor Mate. Have you read it? I think you're we the have third or fourth person on the podcast. to. to a savvy yeah. client gave that to me about a year and a half ago. And she, it was just one of those smart people. Oh, yeah. It's an, yeah, it's an excellent read. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that um, is absolutely amazing. The last one I'll give is um, Accessing the Vagus Nerve by Stanley Rosenberg. I think there's a little bit longer title. accessing the power of the vagus nerve, something like that. I think that's it. I think it's power of the vagus nerve. Yeah. Well, it sounds right to me. I'd have to go look because I've been doing a ton of reading on polyvagal theory. Yes. Yeah. So polyvagal theory, Stephen Porges, Stanley Rosenberg is the one who authored this access Mm -hmm. to the vagus nerve and goes into vagus nerve resets that are a little bit different than uh, vagal tone resets where a lot of people think cold showers and fasting and uh, his techniques are a little bit different. Interesting. That's really yeah. interesting. Cause that's not, that's one I've seen, but I haven't read that one. So we're definitely gonna have to pick mm-hmm. that up. <laughs> we usually end up ordering at least one book after our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Go get waking the tiger. Sorry. Waking the tiger. Yeah. That sounds great. I will definitely do that. All right. And so we know you, you teach and you travel quite a bit. What is your one non-negotiable daily self-care tool? Ooh. I would say my evening routine that I'm huge on sleep. I'm obsessed with sleep. So I have a, my nightly routine that involves my bath. <laughs> it's like, it's good. I don't to like, where it's just, I, I literally have to do that. Have my, I do dry brushing, which I'm obsessed with dry brushing as well from a lymphatic perspective. And then I never fail on that period of, my time that's when I listen to my podcast <laughs> and yeah. I take a bath and it is honestly like the best reset for me and uh 
yeah, sometimes people think that I don't sleep, but I actually sleep a lot. <laughs> I think I sleep like I can see why hours. they think that because <laughs> you accomplish so much that it's like, wait, you're on what part of the world now? Okay. Like, I just don't sleep. I'm like, actually, I sleep a lot. When I go to another country, I literally sleep like 12 hours the night and then I go to the conference and I'm like, I feel amazing. And people are like, Oh my God, this girl's crazy. <laughs> like, yeah. And that's how you accomplish a lot. When you're actually feeling amazing, you can get a lot of stuff done. <laughs> hey, that's how I felt at Phylex last year for Australia. I, we flew in, slept, went, checked out the venue, slept 12 hours that night, literally seven to seven. I felt awesome until like 6 p.m. the next day teaching. I was like, I feel great. And then at 6 p.m. I was like, I still feel okay. I just can't form a sentence. <laughs> yes. It's like, well, we'll see. <laughs> um, if you had, I know you have more time with your, with your patients, obviously, than this, but if you had five minutes with someone, what one thing would you impart to help them improve their health? Mm, I would say connect to your breath. Love that. So the power of breathing, tuning into themselves, do a self-reflection of where their breath is. And then if they feel that they're getting amped up, fired up, feel pain, stressed out, whatever it is, just go back to like a deep, relaxed breathing, knowing that it is actually the exhale that slows our heart rate. Mm -hmm. So exhalation is the most important aspect. I know a lot of people focus on like, belly breathing so they really emphasize like the inhale into the belly like subdiaphragmatic yeah. but it's the prolonged exhale that is what's regulating the heart rate mm -hmm. that's as simple as it is yeah. no, <laughs> no it's great that's amazing we talk to people about that all the time there are a lot of people who overlook it. And then when they eventually do try, we just encourage people to try to reduce their breath count to like five to seven per minute, just as a general gauge. When they eventually try, some try right away. Other people just need a little bit more encouragement. And when they eventually do, we've never had somebody tell us that that is not effective at calming themselves right. down. Yeah, that's great. So last but certainly not least, where can people find you? So my websites, I'm guessing you'll link. Yes. Uh, my education website is ebfaglobal.com. My practice website, if anyone's interested in how I see patients, uh, and I do virtual consultations, so people uh, may be curious to know about that, is my name. So dremilysplickle.com. Naboso's website is nabosotechnology.com. And then I, all three companies and myself personally, am on all of the social platforms. Primarily Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, we'll link all of those in. And if there's anything else that you want LinkedIn, just let us know. Just shoot us an email. If anything new comes up that you want to highlight, we'll add that into the notes as well. Thank you so much for coming on. That was uh, an amazing conversation. Okay. Lots of take-homes for the uh, the listeners out there. And we know you're super, super busy and have uh, a new arrival on the way shortly. So good luck with your upcoming travels and everything you're doing. And thanks for stopping by. And we truly appreciate you making time. Like when we, uh, we know that A, being pregnant is demanding. And uh, we haven't mentioned that yet. Hope you don't mind that we're mentioning that now. But you run so many things and you're impacting our industry and your patients and beyond alike. And we see that ripple effect and it's really, really lovely. So it's inspiring to see where you're going with things too, because we've also seen uh, the evolution of what you're giving webinars about and what you're publishing on your site. So we can't wait to keep seeing how that goes. Good. Thank you. And the, the, one of the perks of the baby is that I will be forced to sit down and actually write. Yes. 
Because <laughs> I've had several book offers and I'm like, oh my God, I like, and they keep hounding me and I'm like, it's so much work to write, but I know that I need to release several of these textbooks. Yeah. So the listeners can stay tuned that that's something that will have some some textbooks out soon. Yes, you absolutely need to, like we had to have a hard stop just to produce, how many pages was it, 200? Yeah, roughly. Just to produce a 200 ebook, like 200 page, sorry, ebook, still took a full stop. So a textbook, can appreciate it's going to take a lot more. <laughs> Thank you so much, Emily. And uh, we will catch you next time on the Move Daily Health Podcast. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. To hear more, head on over to Stitcher or iTunes and subscribe to the Move Daily Health Podcast. And don't hesitate to leave us a review. Thanks for listening.